every story is a COVID story right now. Everything that we're getting has COVID mixed in it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to No Fat Cats. I'm your host, Wesley Dean. Welcome to the podcast where I help video and audio producers set goals, create a plan, and execute consistently. I'm really excited about this episode with Beth Allen. Back in 2009, I attended a study abroad program with Food for the Hungry, where we went to Uganda and Rwanda for part of a study abroad semester. And Beth Allen was actually one of the people back then who was in charge of reviewing my application. I had a phone call with her. And so it was just a blast to be able to reconnect with her uh, just all these years later about where she's at. She's now the communications senior manager at Food for the Hungry, where she's in charge of leading teams that curate and distribute all kinds of video uh, media assets for fundraising and engaging uh, initiatives. And she really has a grasp on where nonprofit fundraising is going, especially development, Christian development organizations. So Food for the Hungry works in over 20 countries around the world. I've been able to see on the ground some of the work they do in in a very uplifting way to support and help people uh, pull themselves out of poverty and and just love the work that they're doing when it comes to any type of fundraising effort is to be able to communicate the impact of your work and this is especially true when you are a global organization that works around the world in places that many people won't have the chance to go you have to be able to communicate the impact of the work or else no one's going to support support your work no one wants to give to an organization that is simply, you know, squandering their money. You need to be able to show that you're having an impact. And this year, 2020, is just presenting a huge set of challenges to people who communicate impact. Because at the beginning of the year, it happened, you know, we weren't sure exactly how long it was going to last. Everything became COVID, you know, related for, for a season. But now that we're gearing up for end of the year campaigns, that was the question is like, how much do you talk about COVID? Can you kind of go back to normal? But I think what everyone's realizing is that everything is a COVID story now. And so even no matter what kind of work you're doing, COVID is interlaced there and it's it's impacting people's lives. It's especially in areas where the, there's not the resilience within the country, within the governance to be able to support, uh, you know, just people in general. And so I think now more than ever, the, the work that people are doing with those who are marginalized is is more important than ever. But also, it is a bit of a challenge to figure out how to communicate it, to make sure that people aren't COVID-saturated almost and tired of hearing anything related to COVID. People do want to hear news stories. However, at the same time, COVID is mixed in with everything going on right now. And so in this episode, we dive into that challenge. How do you communicate a story? How do you test it? And one of the things that Beth is a big proponent of is put out stories and see what people react. What do people connect with? And, and make sure as you're planning, gearing up for your end of year fundraising campaigns, that you are able to, to see what does your audience care about and how do you help communicate a story in a way that makes sense and that people can relate to. Because this there are no shortage of challenges this year, and that includes communication and how we communicate the work that we do. So without further ado, let me jump in to my interview with Beth. Welcome, Beth, to the podcast. It's great having you on. I know, uh, you know, it's been a little while since we interacted back when I was doing, you know, the, the Go Ed Study Abroad program with with Food for the Hungry. Uh, you know, this is, I guess, going back to 2009. And, you know, obviously, while while the, the program maybe has continued, I know the impact that it had on my life ha- has continued, um, you know, well on past then and in the lives of, of other students as well. So thanks so much for, for being on the podcast. 
Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. Um, do you go by Wes or Wesley? I'm sorry. <laughs> you know what? So I actually will go. So it's funny enough. I, orally, I go by Wes. Um, but when yeah. I write it, I write down Wesley. I think maybe in part because I think Wes Dean just seems a little short of a name. That's only seven characters. Okay. Right. Uh, but but orally, I do go by Wes or, or Wesley, either one. I should have uh, asked. I'll call you Wes in the, the, here in the – yeah, okay. Oh, no, no worries. Well, well I know, you know, you're coming for things. You've been with Food for the Hungry for a while. Um, you know, I, I always love the chance when when video communication marketing interact just in the development space. You know, it's what I studied and always love the chance to have a conversation, you know, with someone who, who's working in the convergence of, of those two worlds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but just to give people a little bit of background, can you just tell them like where you're at and um, you know what your current role is? Um, I've... Uh been with uh, Food for the Hungry for 25 years as of yesterday, so Congrats. Uh, quite some time. That's half the uh, eight, half the length of time that the organization has been in operation. So I love this organization and uh, uh, love doing the work that that I've been given to do. Um, at the moment, um, and really for the past eight years, I've been with the marketing department, and my current role is uh, senior communications manager. Uh, and in that role, um, the best thing I can say is, the best way I can describe it is, my job is to get the story out. That means contacting with the fields that are where FH is doing its work, um, maintaining relationships with those folks in a way that we can find out what the stories are that are happening, how to get that story out uh, to those who want to hear it, to our supporters and to people who may not even know Food for the Hungry as well. So that's what I'm doing. So I am curious too, did did you initially, you know, before FH, were you primarily interested more in like the story aspect, the marketing, the development? Like what was that kind of convergence uh, for you? Before I came to Food for the Hungry, I yes. was actually working as an admissions uh, counselor uh, for a university in Texas. Okay. And so there was some storytelling in that. You're telling the story of the university and trying to make sure that there's a good match between the university and the, and the student who's looking at the university. Um, marketing involved with that, which I, again, I'm doing uh, today as well. Uh, but it's an awful lot of, um, it, you're working with people um, uh, in the university, but uh, being in South Texas, I mean, kind of where the convergence happened was um, I began to take note all around me of a lot of people in need. Um, I lived and worked uh, near downtown San Antonio, and uh, there was an awful lot of need there. Um, an awful lot of people recently arrived in the country, for example. Um, a lot of people really living in abject poverty. And I began working with some um, uh, faith-based organizations that were uh, working in the San Antonio area. And uh, after a couple of years of doing that, I just came to the conclusion that that's what I, I wanted to trans transition into, transition out of higher ed. I certainly had an ability to change the world, but I really wanted to get into something that w would take me overseas as well. I'd always dreamed of living overseas, and so that's what I ended up with, Proof of the Hungry, uh, in uh, 1995, going to live in Bolivia in South America for four years. So um, great experience there, and moved into a, um, a, it was a combination of communications and personnel position there, perfect for my background. Um, and have been storytelling ever since with Food for the Hungry in one way or another. 
No, that's great. I mean, so my wife and I actually met in Ecuador. So she's from Ohio, but we met in Ecuador. So, um, and growing up when I was younger, lived in, in Colombia and Puerto Rico. So definitely love uh, Latin America ha- has a special place, place in my heart. But, but that is really interesting kind of seeing, because I think for a lot of people, it, it does come up with storytelling comes out of seeing the need, especially if you're in kind of the, the development space where you, you see a need and you want to communicate that need to people and a natural outcome of that is really storytelling. And so, cause I mean, it's just the best way to communicate with other people through uh, a personal connection. Uh, were there, had there been any moments when in the process of storytelling where you realized for you that, Hey, this is like how powerful it is, or were there any early wins that kind of cemented that as a, uh, you know, as, as a way to go? I think definitely so. Uh, Part of it was that, uh, and this is going all the way back to my days in Bolivia, I uh, started doing some, that was the first time I'd really ever done film. And so I was partnered up with somebody who really knew what they were doing in the film. And just seeing the looks on people's faces when I would go back to the U.S. and start to tell the story of, um, because it is a story of the need. You're right about that. But the, the thing I think that makes me get up out of bed in the morning are the stories of triumph over the need. It's the, the stories of the, um, the, um, the way that parents um, are just, will do anything to take care of their children. Uh, the way that uh, uh, people who are very, very smart, but there's like one big barrier in their way. And if we um, at an organizations like Food for the Hungry can remove those barriers, how far that they'll go very, very quickly the identification of those barriers. And that's part of the story I wanted to get out was these are very, very bright, very able, very capable, very conscientious people who just have some really strong weights on them that are, that are weighing them down and we can take the weights off. So I think that was part of it was just um, being able to do um, a film, video, photography, um, and uh, alongside the written storytelling, which is really my wheelhouse is more of the writing, um, writing end of things, but pairing up with people to be able to tell that whole story and watching people's faces. I have seen people completely turn around, especially ideas about poverty. Um, one of the biggest things I did was able to see in those early days, particularly was um, the, uh, the myth that, that um, people are poor or they have suffering economic poverty because they're lazy. <laughs> and I could just show people, this is not laziness guys. Here's, no. here's what's going on. And that made a big difference to me to see people just completely flip on that particular issue. Well, yeah. I think people really also like being able to root for the underdog who, you know, is, is overcoming odds and who, who is overcoming, you know, struggles. And, you know, I think for me, even though I lived in Latin America, I think obviously for me, the biggest exposure had been, you know, going, being in, in West Africa, Sierra Leone, mm-hmm. and, and also in, in like rural Uganda, where you're seeing people who are like literally hoeing the side of the mountain, you know, in Rwanda, hoeing the side of a mountain. And that's like what they do. And, um, and you're like, yeah, this person's not lazy. They're, they're a very hard worker. And, and I know all it takes is, uh, you know, someone picking up a hoe for, you know, 10 strokes. And you're I was like, wow, I am actually very tired. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm not used to this backbreaking work. Yep. That's absolutely true. And, uh, and seeing how the whole family works together to, to make it happen. Um, and it's a, a 
you know, uh, it's a full day, you know, a 12 hour day. And in much of Equatoria, Africa, it's, it's 630 sun, sunrise, 630 sunset. You've got that 12 hours and they're going, going, going that whole 12 hours. So yeah, very, very tough life. And, okay. uh, yeah. And, and too, so, so I've been curious, you know, with your kind of approach to storytelling, what have, how have you found the balance between, at what point do you invite the, the viewer into the story? Uh, Cause there's always that balance of, it's about empowering people, you know, who are growing, who are overcoming odds. And, but how do you invite people into the story with making sure that you avoid, you know, the white savior complex mm-hmm. and the balance of involving people in the story so that they're a part of it while it's the person, the local person who is, you know, overcoming those odds. Do you have any thoughts on how to balance those, those two? It's a daily struggle. You know, you really have to, because when you say invite the person in, you're, um, I'm looking at, and because of where I'm located, I'm located in, in North America, in the United States, and um, having to speak to a U.S. audience, mon- many of whom, most of whom probably have not left this country. Um, and what they know of, of overseas is what they've seen in the movies or seen on the news, and so or heard stories of other people. I think a couple of ways that I'll, I'll try to battle that is, number one, the stories that 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 I'm using at Food for the Hungry are not coming from me. Um, I'm not going out to fields and doing the story gathering. Very rare that I'm doing that. And I can't do it now at all because of COVID-19. And so we've, we have been in a good position to pivot um, on COVID-19 because of the fact that most of our story gathering was being done by people living in their own country, gathering stories about their own area. And so that's, you know, we really didn't have that big of a break um, really in our, in the number of stories that we've been able to get. Um, they're even doing stuff over the phone, which is great. There's been a lot of stories that I'm getting that are being done by cell phone, basically somebody doing an interview or the cell phone and writing it out. Uh, so that's, that's been really, really good. So that's one way is to, to get the story in the voice, uh, of a national staff member, you know, somebody who's from that country doing the writing, uh, particularly in blog posts. I try to, um, I try to preserve their voice and preserve their writing as much as I possibly can not put a lot of my own writing into it. And it may sound a little stilted and funny. And again, particularly in the blogs, but it doesn't sound like American English, but that's fine. Um, it comes off as authentic in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really does. And, um, and then it's trying to emphasize as much as you can that, um, you know, you, we talk in marketing about using you language and, uh, you know, you, you have to use that you language. That's one way to pull, pull people in. But being careful about the, the verbs that you choose. You, you, you can help. Um, you um, are able to come alongside, something like that. Hard to find one, <laughs> one word. One example, you know, that's yeah. good, good writing. Find that one word, you know, to go in there. But, um, you, you've, you know, it's the dignity in the, the, um, in the writing saying that you are coming alongside, you are helping, but in, in reality, I mean, they're, they're doing the work to be able to come out of it. They have to take that leap of faith. I mean, by they, I mean, the people that we work with our program participants have to not only put in the physical labor, but there's a huge mental leap of faith that they have to take, that this is going to work, that something is going to be different, um, which can be very, very hard if you've been slapped down all of your life and, and you've, um, you've seen failures, you've had barriers to cross, and to take it on faith that, hey, this, this um, you know, we, we want to try this new technique with the soil that we think is really going to help your soil out. Um, we suggest that you use your hoe this way instead of that way. Um, 
they have to take that on and to make sure that as you're writing the stories that that comes out uh, then in the end that this you know the story is about them I, I tend not to try to interject the um, uh, the the person that I'm writing to my audience too much into it until I get to the very end of the story and say and here's where you can come along um, and here's here's where you can help and you do have to present people with a um, with a problem to solve um, I think that's the way I mean this is marketing we do have to raise money yep. it is fundraising and so you do have to give them a problem to solve and a problem that is solvable by them too you don't want to uh, you know I got to be careful about saying things like um, you know you want to say hey help us to um, um, help us to to end poverty in this place now you got to get a little more <laughs> specific yeah. you know to, to show people what they can do and meet them where they are we we have different audiences that we write to i mean i i will write a story differently and bring somebody in differently and and portray it differently i guess if i'm if i'm talking to uh, a mother um with um a mother or a father with young children at home versus grandparents versus people who don't have kids in the home versus somebody in their 20s you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it differently uh, for all of those people. No, definitely, and I like how you kind of almost brought up the part of kind of st storytelling. You know, for people who who maybe don't for people who are on the ground, who, who the story is about. Because in many cases, you know, we look at you know in the U.S. at least we have you know systemic racism, and in many cases you have just have systemic poverty where it's part of that narrative that people have been told. You know, that's been reinforced over centuries. Um, you know, in some ways, some cases, exploitation. Mm -hmm. uh, what role have you kind of seen in terms of how can storytelling not just help donors, but also at the same time help people on the ground? And and I know it's it's always that dilemma of, you know, when you're telling stories, and obviously in your case, you're writing for an American audience, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on how, how can you uplift and tell a different narrative, even if you're not writing and producing something for, for the people you're working with, but just reinforce a better narrative uh, overall. Can you rephrase that a little bit? I'm not sure that okay. I, I Yeah, mean. so how do you do you have any tips on reinforcing the those positive narratives for people on the ground that you're working with, that you're partnering with? You know, even if you're not filming a video for them, how do we convince people that they do have value? Like it's that breaking those cycles of poverty through right. narratives so that people right. first believe it that's true for themselves that they can overcome the odds yeah. um, before it happens. Yeah. You know, one of the first things I learned, um, I, I would go in and, and I'm, you know, looking back to the advice I would give to younger me, um, that I would go in and I'd say I could knock off seven interviews in a day kind of a thing. And this is particularly speaking to, um, I'll say, Americans who tend to be very much in a hurry. Task-oriented. Um, for the relationships. And I learned that um, one of the ways that I can do better storytelling in a way that allows the program participant to control the narrative better is just take time because a lot of times then as you get to talking with somebody a better story crops up than the one you thought you were going to get that's something i really really learned and letting them talk and and you know listening through um you're, you're working through an interpreter most of the time i mean 90 percent of the time and even though i speak spanish i'll often work through an interpreter in Spanish simply because um, my accent's a little quirky and, and my grammar at times and everything like that. I don't want the interviewee tripping over that. So I'll, I'll, I'll use an interpreter and I can understand what's being said back to me, but I'll use the interpreter to phrase the question correctly, which is one of the, that, that's really key. Using an interpreter to phrase the question correctly, taking the time to listen. 
and and I found that storytelling in other other um, cultures tends to be a lot more circular, I would call it, than it is in our culture. We're very linear people. Yeah. Uh, in in, in uh, um, people from my background, anyway, I'll put it that way. Very linear linear in our storytelling, because um, you'll get around and it can be confusing as to who's doing what to whom and when, and so you have to sit and you have to listen for a while and let that story come out. Um, and so, and you give dignity by listening as well. Um, and particularly after disasters, I, there was a situation where I went into um, uh, Philippines right after Typhoon Haiyan a couple of years ago and started interviewing a family. And we spent a good part of the morning with them. But um, one of the things I realized about 10 minutes into it was that this is the first time that the family had sat down together since the storm hit. They'd lost most of their home. Their, um, the area, the, the town that they were in was, most of the town was obliterated. Um, and they had not told each other the story of their experiences together. And so um, we, and luckily I had, um, one of the people traveling with me was a pastor, and partly because we suspected that this was going to be the case, that we would hit a lot of people who were very traumatized. And, um, and somebody that's a pastor who was very much trained in counseling, really trained in trauma counseling. So he knew what he was doing. And um, they, they ended up in tears, you know, and ended up with one, um, uh, one of the daughters really yelling at the father because the father had wanted to stay with the house. He wanted to make sure that the house was okay. The, the mother and daughters had gone to, a, gone to higher ground and they didn't know where he was. And she started just shouting at him you know, don't you, don't you ever do that to us again. We didn't know where you were. You need to come with us next time. We don't care about the house. You know, this was family dynamics happening right in front of us. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't tell that story. I would, you know, I didn't tell that story that way. I didn't write it up that way. And I won't even tell you the name of the town or the name of the family ever. Let's put it yeah. that way. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, how did we do dignity on that? Well, dignity was we sat with them and we cried with them. I mean, we basically realized what was going on. Took the, that time. I didn't do seven stories that day. Let's put it that way. We did one and we helped one family. Uh, to be able to put their lives back together in some little little way, and I didn't do anything. I just sat back and watched because, again, I had Filipinos with me who did all the the counseling and the talking and everything. I mean, I they were we did the interview in English. Their English was fine and could do it, but of course, as they get into the heart stuff, they start lapsing into their um, into their their heart language, and uh, just step back and watch that go. So, but that's really key is letting them tell the story. And the number two, uh, you know, having those those. Um, the people from the area with me and, and propping me up the whole way. I never gather a story on my own. I don't even like to study. I did the story gathering on this because there's so little that I actually do. I asked the, I asked the questions and, you know, leaned very heavily on my interpreter to, to help me um, frame it and, um, and guide the story. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is that almost, especially if you're, if you're dealing with people who feel perhaps marginalized a little bit or like they haven't been heard, just the very act of listening carefully, being attentive, spending time can actually be very, um, very like uplifting as a process. Absolutely. And they, they will oftentimes, they'll remember, you know, being interviewed. Um, it, they're, they're often very formal. Um, one of the things I fought with, uh, I have fought with over the years is getting photos back that look very formal. I'm still doing that today. And people have their picture taken and, um, they say, well, I wish, I wish they looked a little looser. I wish they were a little, 
you know, and it's like, but you don't understand. They haven't had their picture taken like this in very long, if ever. You know, anybody has said, I'd like to take your family photo. Um, and they're, this is a very special moment for them. And so you've got to let them do that. Got to let them tell the story that way. They want to tell the story that way. That's fine. I'm not going to tell the kids to cut up. You know, I've, I've had times where I've, you know, I've been with folks taking photos and saying, hey, kids, you know, act up, play around like this. And the mother is going, oh, my gosh, she's so embarrassed, you know, that her children are acting like that uh, to take a photo. Um, and that's, and I think, yeah, I think, especially for that first one where they kind of need that, that time. And, um, I know at times I find that especially you almost have to connect with people first, let them get some of that, uh, no, those more formal photos. And then kind of once things go back to normal now, then potentially get, get some of that stuff, but, but you're right. It just takes, it takes a lot longer. Yeah. The more candid yeah, photos. Yeah. And, and the mother, you know, will relax. That embarrassed mother will relax because she gets to know you as well, or the father. I don't want to blame it all on the mom, but, but the mother and the father, then once they get to know you, will let the children, and they'll be comfortable letting the children be children. Uh, you're right. But it's time, 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 time. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing. And um, it, it's almost like you have to allow, you know, what you would normally if you were, you know, hey, just taking a photo, how hard would that be, you know? 30 minutes, but then you almost have to extend it out your timeline, you know, two or three times what it normally would be. Sure. Sure. And I know that now in some of the places that you've been, Wes, I mean, you may have run into this too, that you actually, I have had found that when I'm on the field, um, even with FH, one of the things I have to do is kind of an orientation to how I'm going to work because um, most of our staff are used to having visitors in the field, but they're used to the visitors coming in for, it, it's a reporting visit for, in other words, it's a, it's a major donor you know, like yep. a governmental donor agency like USAID coming in and um, they, they need to see as much as they possibly can within a day. So I have to so tell her schedule staff, a full day with 30 minute stops everywhere. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. 30 minutes. And I said, I can't do this in 30 minute stops, you know, because you have to get relational. So that's one of the things, um, you know, again, advising my younger self or, or people who want to go into this type of work is making sure that you're the people who are making it possible for you to do it. Your drivers, your your people doing your logistics, um, your your interpreter, um, to be able to say to them, "Hey, this is you know, this is not quite the same as a reporting visit of a major donor. Uh, this is um, this is something that." Um, where we're going to need to sit down and we're going to need to, need to spend a little time with this. So, um, and setting it up, setting it up that way. And, um, even just sitting down, I've done trial runs with an interpreter before to be able to, um, if it was somebody who I, uh, and sometimes because of the languages we get into, you can't always find professional interpreters. You no. just use what you got, you know? And so I'll sit down and do a trial run on a, or a mock interview. Um, to be oh, that's, that's an interesting idea of doing a, the yeah. mock interview. I've done uh, mock interviews quite a bit of time with our staff and with, with an interpreter before I go out to say, this is how we're going to work together. Yeah. Okay. And that also just lets you know, kind of, they're not embellishing the story too much or just, or saying what you want to hear, but actually are doing a, a legitimate interpretation. Yeah. And that's that, well, you know, if I can understand, I mean, you don't always know that if you're working that's with true. an interpreter, you're, you don't always know. Um, but that's, um, and, you know, part of it is I do sit down with people and, and try to say, hey, let's not lead. That's why I work, would work with an interpreter on the question and make sure you don't ask leading questions. Yeah. Um, that, that's part of it as well. But, um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate in working with Food for the Hungry um, for doing this overseas is that um, I'm going into situations where they have deep relationships with people. Um, and um, 
and we can be honest. I mean, I've gotten, I've gotten happy stories, but I've gotten as many sad stories over the years to our people saying, you know, I do get people who say, I wish food for the hungry would have done this differently. You know, they look at me as the person that they talk to. And luckily in any situation I've been in, I've had a good enough relationship that it hasn't been an embarrassing moment. We just say, Hey, this is somebody blowing off steam and that's great. You know, um, we need to hear that. We need to hear that, that, uh, that opinion. So it doesn't happen very often, but, um, when I do get that, it's almost like you take it as a gift because you know that they feel comfortable with the people who are there. That's yes. If you hear somebody say something negative, you know that they're not afraid that FH is going to, Food for the Hungry is going to do something. Yeah, you know, and, and they actually down. have a good enough yeah. relationship to, to that's be That's a candid. good relationship. That's, um, for me, that's a good relationship marker. It's, especially yeah. in the context, you know, in a lot of international contexts where there is a very big power distance. Um, and, and the fact that they feel comfortable sharing that is, is actually a, yeah, a really good sign of, of a healthy relationship yeah. and, and that, that yeah. trust. Yeah. So, so I'm curious too, like how has, you know, COVID changing things? I know, you know, at least on, on my end, uh, you know, I'm not planning on going anywhere internationally the rest of the year, maybe, I mean, into next year. Um, you know, how has that changed, you know, how's it affecting you guys when it comes to story gathering? And I mean, it sounded like you've had a lot of on the ground people who are collecting stories where, you know, they know the people, they speak the language and, and it's a lot easier, but, but what, how, how are, how are things changing this year for you? Well, we've, we've had to take a look. I've, I've got another chart. I have to look at another layer. Of course, uh, some of our fields um, are, are um, according to the, you know, the government regulations that they're following. Some of our fields um, are not on lockdown. Some are, some aren't, some are in complete lockdown. And so I do have to take a look at that before requesting something. Um, I've had to make it very clear that I don't want anybody and, and say it overtly. I don't want anybody putting themselves in danger in order to get a photo or to get a story. Um, I've um, uh, we are doing a lot by cell phone. Um, it is amazing and, what you can get with, especially with cell phones getting better these days. Yeah, and especially with the you know it, it, as the one of the common statistics is there's quite a few more cell phones in this world than there are toilets. There are, there are many many people who have a cell phone but do not have indoor plumbing, um, and so um, we quite a number of cell phones. And so um, we're using cell phones in a lot of ways to capture the stories and even the the photos on the other end. Um, again, relationship is really key. Um, we we don't we can't pay somebody you know, paying, a, getting into paying a, uh, somebody who's a volunteer for us and working for a volunteer, you got to be careful. I mean, you've got to have that relational depth that they're willing to give the story without, without pay. Um, and that, that gets into, believe me, I've laid awake at night thinking about this. What if, you know, what if, do we need to go that direction? I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't had that much conversation with people about it, but do we get into figuring out a way to, to pay people who are in the community to be able to do the story gathering for us. So one of those things. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it, and it does kind of add, a, add a, some layers of complications. Cause if you ha have primarily been relying on volunteers and all of a sudden one position becomes paid, then it just kind of can change expectations a little bit. It's like, well, Absolutely. that's the problem. Yeah. Like, it, well, why is part. it's like, yeah. e even though the stories they are producing are extremely valuable, uh, it, it does kind of raise that dynamic of like, well, Hey, why is this position paid you know versus this one's volunteer it's like whoa exactly. <laughs> that, that exactly. layer of, of complication and, and i'm assuming you guys aren't probably sending anyone internationally at least for you know the no. year you know no. into the into into next year or is it still kind of just end of the year for you guys in terms of timeline horizon i don't have anything on the books 
Yeah, no, one's, no one's booking anything at all. I mean, at this point, we're in the, the rare, I think, spot where, unfortunately, it's it's almost like we're more of a risk of taking a disease in some of these places than the other way around, just because of how That's things are problem. going here in the U.S. And um, and even if someone's healthy beforehand, just the process of getting on a plane, you know, exposure, you know, the last yep. thing we want to do when trying to help people is, is to be spreading COVID. <laughs> Yeah, no, so we're not um, obviously not sending anybody from here. And um, I even have to be concerned about, um, you know, and this gets down to I, I'm using cell phones within the country, even though in in, in some cases, uh, staff members can travel like from where our, our office would be in the capital of the country out to the rural areas we would work. We're not not sending people out because it would, um, you know, it, it would be a possibility of additional of risk. transmission of the disease. Yeah, again, to people who don't have the um, where um, medical care and medical care facilities could be easy, easily overwhelmed um, by uh, surges of, of COVID-19. So, um, so yeah, we're doing a lot by cell phone. That has really changed. Um, I had to go through and um, and relook at our requirements for informed consent, uh, which was, you know, the, the the consent. I would I agree to have my my um, image used. I agree for my story to be used for fundraising. We we had required a written signature on that. Can't do that. You can't ha hand somebody a pen. No. Right now, you know, um, and you know, can't get that close to them to be able to hand them a pen or anything, or even even handing somebody a piece of paper. And so we went through and I I redid it so that it's you know verbal consent. Um, just please X here that that verbal consent was received, and then you have we have something that we have. People, you have to read to them and make sure that they understand where the photo can be used. And the biggie is making sure that they know that it can be used, um, that it could be used um, online where a lot of people can see it. And so I know we've kind of briefly talked about this before, but no, I really liked how you had spelled out, you know, informed consent and, and what that is like. And it's not just a simple matter of, hey, can I take your picture? But it's helping them understand like what you're doing, you know, with the photo, how it's being used. Can you just for listeners kind of go through that, what that process is like for you and, and why you are, are a big fan of informed consent when it comes to, to photos? Video. I'm a huge fan of informed consent, and, and uh, well, I'm part of a working group. There's a, a, a group called the Integral Alliance. It's uh, some of the larger faith-based Christian faith-based organizations in the in in the world um, that we we've been working on for the past two years. And last week, I, we just wrapped it up talking about this. And so, this is something really you know close to my heart. But the informed consent is that they understand how the story will be used. And it's particularly the form that it will be used and what parts of the story. Um, and, uh, you know, we would say to them, um, it would be used for raising funds um, and make it clear that they won't, they won't be compensated for it, but it would be using raising funds that would benefit their community. Um, and then it would, um, um, it could go online, it could go on the internet, uh, it could go on social media. Um, that's important um, in a, because of the fact that that there are some people who just don't want want it known where they are you know we can use a um we can use a pseudonym for example but a pseudonym's not going to cover it you know with facial recognition where yeah. it's going these days yeah and, so just, and, and do you find is it primarily about people security or is it also just people wanting to know you know where they're going to be appearing yeah, definitely. It's people want to know where they're going to be appearing. They have a right to know that, you know, that's, that's part of uh, maintaining their dignity. Um, because the, the flip side of that is to say, oh, these people, you know, and anytime you start a sentence with these people, you know, yes, you yeah, flags, for red flags, red flags there, but, oh, these people will never see it. Well, it doesn't matter that they're not, never going to see it. Yeah. 
you know, they still do deserve the dignity, even if they're never going to see it. How knowing it's, where it's going to go. Yeah. And knowing where it's going to go. And, um, um, so we, you know, an, another added thing that we've had to do, um, I'll mention this is that, um, you know, thinking about as we do stories and, and COVID is showing up everywhere. I was in a conversation yesterday where a colleague said, are you, are you collecting more COVID stories? And I said, every story is a COVID story right now. Everything that we're getting has COVID mixed in it. Um, so, you know, no, I'm not going out and saying, show me COVID pivots because everything has a COVID pivot in it. Um, it's almost like but, you, you don't have to try to come up with a COVID story. It's like everything whether it's economics, whether it's how people are having a hard time, you know, selling their produce in market, you know, whatever it is, has now become, you know, is viewed through that COVID lens. Absolutely. And the other thing is, is that I'm finding myself going back to, we had to kind of dust off, um, not really dust off, we're still using them, but um, in the ways that we would talk about HIV AIDS when it comes to COVID, um, getting uh, their explicit permission to talk about the fact that someone in the family has COVID. Um, and down to um, the, the organization I work for, Food for the Hungry, also has um, uses child sponsorship, uh, both as a fundraising as a funding methodology. And so one of the, the first things we had to think about is how are we going to share news about a sponsored child having COVID with a sponsor? Because we're um, you know, living in situations where if anybody in the, in the household has COVID, it could mean that the entire family would be... Um, you know, shunned is kind of an old-fashioned word, but the the worst thing we were worried about was um, loss of livelihood. Yeah. Like, for example, a child has it, then the father is is known to be exposed, and then um, the father and mother are unable to get work outside of the home because of the fact that they're known for the child having COVID. So we need to let that play out the way the family wants to do that. So we did make a decision that we would not be, um, you know, we would we would share um, COVID nineteen status you know if a family said we would like our sponsor to know we would like the sponsor to pray and we have had a number of, of uh, not not a large number but we've had a number of kids where the, the the parents have said we'd like to tell the sponsor um that the child is sick that, yeah but that's it that's all we, we would share it with you know and i'm not i don't think i've run a um, um i'm trying to think of i've run a story i can't think off the top of my head of anybody who's actively sick um but I've run some stories of people who were caregivers of people who were sick. That's a better way to put it. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe exposed, but yeah. And, and those difficulties as well. No, it, it is. And I think it, even if someone doesn't have it specifically, you know, I mean, everyone's being impacted by it, um, you know, in, in, in terrible ways, you know, besides just the, the disease itself. Um, but you're right. It, it is a balancing act of have, how do you let people know, but help them avoid the stigma. And because um, if anything, I mean, especially in laws where there's, about discrimination in some places where there's no laws about discrimination, you know, all it takes is just the news that someone had COVID and they might not get sick from it, but they, that could be enough to, you know, get them out of a job for who knows how long. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing we're dealing with, um, you know, it, it does impinge on storytelling is of course the mental health, um, and emotional health, um, spiritual health as well that goes along with, with these times. And so, I've really enjoyed working on one story um, where we, we've started a, a COVID-19 hotline, a phone-in hotline uh, with um, Food for the Hungry Peru, uh, where people can call in just to somebody to talk to um, and, and deal with that. And that brought up a whole, a whole second set of, um, or, or similar 
um, issues with, with storytelling. How do you tell the story in a way that protects the identity of somebody with a mental health issue? And so we have been telling the story. We've, we've gotten some publications out, but it was a case of the person we focused on was a, a, a leader, a mother leader, we call her in our community. And she wanted the story told. And in some ways, the story, that gets back to what we were talking about earlier, that the, um, the process of telling a story can be so healing. And she wanted that story told because she wanted other women to hear, uh, other women who were sandwiched generation. I mean, she was taking both of her, her kids, and then she had sick parents, and then she had a sick sister-in-law, uh, or brother-in-law, I think it was, that, or sick sister that she was trying to take care of. She wanted the story told because she wanted people to know that there was help available. There's and help so and you, can, you can't get through it. You can't get through it. And she wanted people to know that. And so in that particular story, the way that I've done some of the storytelling on that, um, on our on, um, Food for the Hungry's blog was um, to switch over and, and talk about um, the staff member's experience then of working with this mother. Um, when she called in to the hotline, then a staff, one of the Food for the Hungry staff member has had training. And we, we've trained all of the people answering the uh, phone calls um, we're trained by PAHO, which is the um, World Health Organization in Spanish. Okay. <laughs> Their Spanish acronym. Uh, and PAHO um, did the, the training uh, for them. So, you know, trained listeners um, in, in, um, in this kind of, of hotline. And um, so the staff member told about her experience then. And then they took, the step, took it one step further about once the mother had received some help, then what they were doing as a group. She was a you know, she was still in a mother leader group, but this mother within the group was a real catalyst once, you know, once she could work through her own issues, a real catalyst in a group with helping other people to the point where they're now doing meetings where they're just dealing with emotional, spiritual, physical health, that kind of thing. They're doing these meetings. The kids have asked that they can come to the meetings too. And I thought, that's great. That's great. Yeah, that is great. <laughs> No, no. So, sounds good. Well, kind of as we're kind of getting, wrapping things up here, you know, I've just love the thoughts on, you know, what kind of stories do you think, you know, you're looking to tell going into, you know, obviously for any, uh, you know, nonprofit kind of the end of the year giving season is always a, a very important time, uh, you know, for communicating impact. Uh, do you have a sense for, for what kinds of stories people are looking to tell? What kinds of stories are people looking to hear? Um, does every story you tell have to somehow involve COVID? Is, is that just the reality of, of 2020 or, uh, or do you think there's ways, ways around it for your traditional stories? Well, we are finding that there is, uh, that, um, and we're measuring it. We're actually taking a look, we're doing measures. Some of the things are COVID, some of them aren't, and then we're doing comparisons right now. So I'd say, I'm I'm not sure that we have a, a decision yet on exactly which stories we're going to tell. We know where, where and when we're going to do the storytelling, but as far as the content, um, yeah, it is something we're very much talking about and looking at those numbers, which has the higher open rate, which ones have the higher give rates, and, and we're getting to the point now. We've had enough you know, in back of us that we can take a look and see whether COVID is still something people want to hear about. Um, we, um, uh, I think what the story that we will be telling in many cases is like one that I'm, um, we're working with, with Ethiopia and, and, and Kenya right now, you know, having, having COVID and well, the Ethiopia particularly having COVID on top of a locust invasion, locust invasion on yeah. top of drought on top of in Ethiopia's case, um, there's been some political instability going on as well. And so you get those, that, that quadruple whammy early going on there. 
And so I think that that's, that's kind of going to be the story. And it's, it's very complex. Um, and we've, we've got to figure out how to tell the story with a, how do you tell the story with less complexity and maintain the digni dignity, you know? Yeah, um, it does always a tough dynamic of when a story is very complex, you know, there's only so much, that, especially if people aren't familiar with the background, the setting that you can absorb in two to three minutes, but you okay. know, you want to do it justice without having a completely over simplified story. I think we're, we're going to have to go simple. We're going to have to find ways to focus without losing the dignity because I, I think um, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown and in early, very early on in the, the whole COVID thing, she did a podcast that just, well, I was just, you know, cheer, cheer, cheer. And it was, you know, she was saying that, um, you know, everybody's, one of my takeaways was everybody right now is working at about 20% battery. Yeah. Uh, everybody is working in 20 but she said the myth of of well you know especially she was talking about an emerital relationship of of um well if you've got you've got 20 percent battery i'll pull out the 80 percent she said the reality is sometimes you both have 20 percent battery <laughs> you just got to figure out how to deal with that and um and i think we're we have an entire country at 20 percent battery right now and so uh, the complexity although the stories are complex uh, becoming more complex, we've got to figure out how to bring it down to a place where people can understand it. And I think um, things like focusing on, um, do you want to help children, which is what we do at Food for the Hungry, is is focusing on how does this affect the children specifically and, and that language. Um, um, you know, I can talk about mothers who are um, emotionally um, having a, a, a tough time, but I do need to um, um, really focus on, you know, how is this affecting the children? And that's one way that we can focus that story down. Pose it um, down. Tell and, the real story. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're also getting, you know, hammered with, you know, education, let alone um, on, on top of all of those, those layers. Um, yeah. So how, how much do you feel like trying to, to narrow it down to focus on individuals is kind of helpful from, from that regard? And that it's easier to connect with what one person's going through or, or one, one village is going through versus, understanding the context, but not getting too confused or, or too bogged down by that. What does that yeah, balance look like for you? Yeah. Well, the balance is, is, it's actually got to be more about the individual and you, you pick and choose on your context as much as you can. Um, you know, there's different facets of a story. I mean, I've, I've, some of those stories that are coming out of Ethiopia right now, I'll probably use four or five different ways. Yep. <laughs> you can write them different ways, which is, you know, how you keep yourself from going crazy. And in this time when, when content, um, when you can't get content, when your content's content stream is limited it's it's increasingly important to be able to do reuse and to be able to look at and see okay what are the different things we can do here what are the different ways we can go how can we make this story work in a couple of different ways um so that we're not having to one thing having to put a burden back on our field staff or having to pick it up since we can't go out and get it um no, so yeah it's and so I know, I know with, with writing, you could definitely, it is a little bit easier to kind of repurpose things in different ways. What are you finding when it comes to, you know, video and, you know, you know, photos, is it primarily relying on cell phones, uh, older footage or kind of what, what has been your thought when it comes to video specifically? Cell phone and older footage, uh, definitely, um, I've been in some projects where we've, we've, we've had to do that right now. And it just means that, um, you know, things might not look as pretty as you thought you wanted them to, but. Yeah. Um, we've been having a lot of discussion lately about um, um, should we give up the pretty permanently? That'll be one of the interesting tests is to see. No, you know, we've always, you know, is 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 the pretty what people really want, um, or is more authentic? You know, because the cell phone videos are definitely authentic. Yeah. No. It, well, that's interesting too, because I think even before COVID, there was a bit of a transition. 
to to people just valuing authentic. I think in some ways uh, we kind of almost reached you know pre pity peak pretty a little bit just with like dslrs and the advent of dslrs where all of a sudden everybody could take a pretty looking not everybody but just pretty images were much more accessible and um and so after a while i think once more people could do it it started to become less of a focus on is it pretty and more is on is it an authentic story and what is the actual story behind the process not just does it look really good and so i think it will be interesting and, and you know that's one of the reasons why i've almost i've kind of held off on buying any new uh new camera gear lately um it's just because i'm like i don't know that you know I, I had a friend who bought a, a brand new camera in february and it's been sitting on his bookshelf uh you know his gear shelf for the, for the last you know umpteen months um but i think it will be interesting to see it is is what actually happens with storytelling and and I think people always connect with story, but they might don't don't necessarily need pretty all the time. I think. Yeah, and I think that um, you you have to think about you know again audience, audience, audience is everything. Uh, what is the purpose of this? What are you trying to What are you trying to elicit? Um, there are some feelings I think that you elicit with that something that is aesthetically just astounding. It's a different set of feelings that you elicit with that. If that's the feeling you're going for, you're going to need the big equipment to do that. Um, if it's the the power of words, I mean, the, the a video that just brought me to absolute tears this week was um, it turned out to be a friend of a friend. There was a viral video of an older lady who was um, in, playing Auld Lang Syne in her apartment in Beirut that had been bombed. It went viral, and um, and I was in tears watching the video. I'm a musician, and just that thought of you know the first thing you would do if my living room had been bombed too. The first thing I'd do is go and check and see if the piano was was hurt. Um, you go and you start playing on your old friend. This old friend, are you okay? It's kind of like checking its fingers and toes, you know, to make sure that it's it's all there. As people around her were sweeping up the glass, and um, it was shot, you know, in vertical on an iPhone, and um, you know, not not necessarily the best aesthetically, but the message was there. And what people, you know, I think what the the woman who shot it um, was trying to say is, you know, that there's this is sad, life goes on kind of a thing. Um, so yeah, thinking about what you want to say, it's all very important. Let me say this about, about um, iPhone, uh, taking it on a phone. I mean, uh, I think that there's some beautiful still shots that are coming out, stuff Absolutely. that we, we're, are jaw-dropping stuff that, that people who are allegedly amateurs are doing. So that is one of the things we're finding out, that there's, there's a lot of talent out there. Um, and uh, but we have had to, the, 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 the challenges with the design on the other end, because they're taking the phones and because of the you know, just economic conditions, whatever, um, and we can't go back and forth, they're, they're using um, apps like WhatsApp is one of the biggies right now to send it, which means that it's a very compressed file by the time we get it, very small. Um, you know, and if you've got design, if your, your design aesthetic is requiring a printed photo that's, that's eight by four, you know, taking the half of the half of a page or something that fills the website, you're not going to get that yeah. you know, from a community member on a cell phone. So we've had to actually go back and say, "Look, guys, we need to we need to think about our design. We need to to we have we have the the big um, the big clean space, you know, aesthetic going For on for wide photos. Uh, yeah, wide and, and wide and and um, no, twenty one you know, twenty five megapixel photos that you're. That's right, exactly, and we. we we're not going to be able to get that. We're going to get fewer of those um, right now. So we kind of go back and forth. We have a you know healthy photo library because we had done a couple of shoots. Um, in fact, the last one we did was in February, just before everything shut down. We did a major, major uh, film and shoot. 
uh, in Africa. And so we, we have some stuff uh, put away, but you know, we're going to run out. It's going to get, get dated. And, uh, and, and also kind of becomes almost a little more irrelevant. We are like, well, this doesn't look relevant. <laughs> like, you know, just the fact that if you get a whole bunch of people together, you know, not wearing masks, all of a sudden it kind of becomes a little bit, doesn't feel that's quite true. as authentic and clearly becomes pre COVID. Yep. That's, and we had that last night. We, I, in fact, I spent part of yesterday with that, how we were going to explain it's a story that we really wanted to share that was just pre COVID. We definitely wanted to share it with, with supporters, but um, we're having to put disclaimers in and say the story was collected before, um, before COVID. Or, or, or just say, you know, even last night we talked about, cause not all of the countries are even practicing social distancing. Mm. Um, it depends on what country you're in. And, um, you know, we just had to come up with some, some verbiage on that. So we are, we are very much having to look at that. And as we look toward the end of the year, um, yeah, we will have more of that. That'll be coming up more and more. So. No, it sounds good. So what kind of skills do you feel like if you, you know, looking at for people who are in the creative space, you know, I mean, I think in many ways, you know, there's still a spot for pretty, not quite as important, you know, mm -hmm. but do you have any thoughts on what skill set you find is going to be valuable, you know, next year, later down the road that, do people need to work on honing in? Flexibility, 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 number one. Number two, listen, 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 listen. Because of that flexibility, you are going to have to know what people want. Um, and people aren't going to know what they want. Yeah. Um, people are, are confused. I mean, your clients uh, or the people you're serving, again, 20% battery. It's going to take longer to get you down to the, I'm finding with people I work with, it's taking longer to get down to what is it you really want and having to unravel that. So a lot of listening and a lot of flexibility on stuff and people coming back and changing their mind later because they're cloudy headed. Um, I, know, I, th I think that is a good point to point out is that when people are tired, their things are cloudy, you know, it's going to be hard to get everyone on the same page at the very beginning yep. because it's just new territory. Yep. It's, it's because of the new territory. So, um, you know, and you, you, you've got your, you know, this line I will not cross, you know, um, for design or for your aesthetic, um, you know, I, I'd say really think about those lines you won't cross. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, and why you're, you know, just really know yourself well as to, you know, why you won't cross it. Um, I'm not saying it's because you need to put money in your pocket, but, um, you know, I look at creativity as something that serves other people. And if, if you, um, that's when my creativity is best when I'm serving yeah. somebody else. I know that's not true for everybody, but if you're serving somebody else, you're truly wanting to serve somebody else, you know, giving up your, um, giving, being flexible um, on your aesthetic, being flexible on some things that can actually be so healing for somebody else. It's a way of saying, I care about you. I, so, I, you know, it's great, great tips, flexibility and, and listening and, um, and more flexibility. So, well, <laughs> well, well, thanks so much, Beth, for being on the podcast. It's just been great uh, being able to catch up with you, um, hear a little bit about where things are going. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think anyone imagined that 2020 was going to be this different of a year compared to anything we, we've experienced before. But um, I think, you know, the biggest thing is just love conversations with people who are in it. You know, and like, you know, said, it's interesting just kind of hearing how you're also doing research to see what works. Is it the is it the COVID stories or is it the non-COVID stories? And I think that's the, the biggest thing is everyone has to be doing research, talking with people, checking in to see what actually is working, what um, what do people want to hear, and um, and then finding ways of producing that in the most flexible way possible. 
And so obviously I'm sorry, people can go on to fh.org. Um, any other places that you recommend in terms of just seeing or reading or, or seeing some of the stuff that the Food for Hunger has been producing? Well, I think that fh.org, we also have our YouTube channel as well. And um, one of the things we've been doing um, is taking advantage. We were a little stacked up actually in doing production of videos. And so um, we, and, and this, you know, gets back to advising people as both on both ends, whether you're the, a client or whether you're a, um, somebody who's doing the production um, in taking a look at, you know, can we slice and dice things a little differently um, for our audiences? Can we take stuff that's in the can and, yeah. uh, and retheme it? And repurpose so we're doing it. a bunch of that and repurpose it. And so uh, if you were to go on our YouTube channel um, uh, for food for the hungry, um, you would, you would see some of that as well, that that's, that's what we're doing this year. So, um, and we also have, we do have a blog, um, it is on the fh.org. Um, uh, you can see our blog there. It's on, actually, if you scroll down the homepage, you'll be able to see that. So, um, and you'll see how some of the, the stories have had to shift um, over the past two months as we're doing the blog. We've been doing six to eight stories, uh, six to eight blog posts a month. Oh, great. Uh, that you can see there. So, well, it sounds good. Well, I'll definitely have those links on the show notes uh, for people to just click on to eat freeze. But, but thanks so much, Beth. It's been wonderful having, and it's great to chat. And thanks for being on the podcast. And that wraps up another episode of No Fat Cats. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Beth. You know, I love just the biggest thing is right now, people need to tell stories. I think more than anything, we've discovered that people want to connect with people who are overcoming odds. And there's definitely a lot of odds out there that a lot of people are facing, especially people in the developing world. I know a lot of the work that I enjoy the most is work with nonprofits, development organizations who are really working to make a difference in people's lives. And so I strongly encourage you to check out their work, Food for Hungry's work. And if you yourself are working with a nonprofit who is working to have an impact, I'd love to hear a little bit about how are you figuring things out? What is messaging looking like? Because I know now that we are, you know, almost in September, everyone is really having to gear up and plan for their end of the year fundraising goals. But my biggest takeaway from Beth was stay flexible. It's hard to tell where things are going to be. You can't really tee up a story this early on and expect it to necessarily be relevant in December. So stay flexible, keep innovating, and always looking for good stories. Until next week, have a good one.